Hey, y'all, it's me again, Angie Hambrick, Assistant Vice President of Diversity, Justice, and Sustainability over here in, in the Diversity Center at POU. And I'm excited to offer our fourth in a series of Diversity Center alumni podcasts. Um, the purpose of our podcast is really to center the voices of decenter alums um, from minoritized communities and also to center the values of the Diversity Center, which are critical reflection, perspective-taking, community, and care. So for this um, podcast, I'm really excited to kind of look at PLU's mission statement, which is educating for lives of thoughtful inquiry, service, leadership, and care for other people, their communities, and the earth, and really having a conversation with some dope-ass professors here on campus about the complexities of service and care. So today, joining me is Dr. Katherine Wiley, Assistant Professor of Anthropology. Hey, Katherine. Hey, Angie. Dr. Giovanna Undangarain, Associate Professor of Hispanic Studies. Hey, Giovanna. Hey, Angie. And Ami Shaw, Dr. Ami Shaw, excuse me, Assistant Professor of Global Studies and Anthropology. Hey, Ami. Hi, good morning. So the topic again is um, the complexities of service and care. And we're really thinking about this in a global and international context. Um, the faculty um, around this table today have extreme experiences in, um, in our global community. So I wanted to start the conversation with just asking you all to tell me a little bit about your personal experiences engaging in service or care or scholarship in a global in a global context and what led you to this work I've led four study away programs in my time here at PLU the Oaxaca program which is a semester program in Mexico I created the Uruguay one month program in J term and I've led it twice now getting ready to go again this coming January and I was a um, Spanish uh, instructor for Peace Corps volunteers in Uruguay between 1992 and 1994. Um, so this is Catherine, and I'm here, I think, not as much in my professor hat, but more because I was actually a Peace Corps volunteer in Mauritania, um, in the Islamic Republic of Mauritania, teaching high school English there from 2001 to three. And then I also worked in nonprofits after that, Some of one of which was internationally focused, uh, an organization up in Seattle that worked training healthcare providers around the world on latest updates on HIV AIDS treatments. Um, and then now at PLU, I lead a Peace Corps prep program, which is a new certificate program, basically a minor here that tries to prepare students who are interested in service after graduation, whether that's local or global. Um, and yeah, so all of our trajectories are pretty different. I started um, about halfway through undergraduate getting seriously interested in international development and then interned for like an international development consulting firm that ran projects for like USAID and the World Bank. And then I worked for a year as an intern um, subcontracted to USAID as well, which led me to graduate school um, for development studies, where I specifically sought out programs that would let me go abroad to do research. So I conducted research um, and have conducted research since in Nigeria and in India. 
What was your um, areas of research in those two countries, Ami? So I worked um, on urban development programming and its effects on marginalized communities within particular cities. So how it affects ideas of belonging to the city and kind of the social aspects of development planning. And what led you to those two countries? Honestly, (laughs) in... And for my master's, which is when I started working in Nigeria, a lot of people assumed that because of my South Asian identity, I was naturally going to go to India, mm-hmm. and that made me angry. Um, and I decided not to. But I had actually gone in wanting to go um, to a, like a post-conflict society, like coming from USAID talk and this idea of like civil society and like social movements, kind of. Um, so I wanted to go to like Sierra Leone or Sri Lanka. At, at the time, it didn't seem like either of those would be viable because of their particular political situations. I wouldn't get clearance to go. Um, But I kind of came back to really the first essay I wrote in graduate school, which was on a migrant community in Nigeria. And that just went from there. That was like my first love. And the more I read about it, the more I wanted to go there. Um, And then I had a desire to not just be in one location. I wanted to look at phenomena across space. Mm. So Catherine, you also have research agenda globally, correct? I do, yeah. So I continued later. I went back and got my PhD and do research in Mauritania where I did the Peace Corps, actually in the community where I did the Peace Corps. Um, And I am interested in um, Mauritania declared slavery illegal in 1981. Mm -hmm. So super recently, it was the last country in the world to abolish slavery. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested, given that recent change, um, how people who are slave descendants or former slaves themselves are navigating their positions in Mauritania and making meaningful lives for themselves. And so I especially look at women um, and how they're doing this in part through the kind of work that they do. Giovanna? Um, Well... I'm originally from Uruguay in South America. My research agenda has to do with how societies in what we call the southern cone of Latin America, which involves Paraguay, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and because of the inclusion of Bolivia and Brazil in the Plan Condor, um, I'm going to mention them, even though they are not technically part of the southern cone, um, how those societies experience dictatorship and how they represent the violence that happened there particularly in narrative written by women and in film. And so I'm being researching and publishing on representations of that violence. And mostly, I would say at this point, on the violence inflicted on women and how women reflect on that. Because sexual abuse in particular used as a systematic form of torture during dictatorship in that region was something that didn't really, um, wasn't debated early on. Mm-hmm. In those countries, and just to give an example, the first 28 women who denounced those situations in Uruguay in particular came um, publicly about those issues just in 2012. So, yeah, that's my global research agenda. Awesome. Um, Ami and Kat, you two have a research agenda in, in countries where folks think you don't necessarily belong, right? Yeah. If you didn't know, Kat is white. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> 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 Ami mentioned um, her Indian culture. So you both are in places where folks don't expect you to be. Mm-hmm. So how do you navigate kind of your identity, your positionality in countries where 
folks don't necessarily look like you or have the same experiences as you or don't expect you really to be in their in their their spaces. Yeah, that's hard. Um I think a lot about my white privilege when I'm in places like that. And let me let me say that I think one thing that's been interesting for me in reflecting about the questions you sent is I've been in Mauritania in two very different contexts, right? And the first was I was 23 in the Peace Corps as a white person going to this place um, from a school that didn't focus on service and care and, and diversity, really, my back, like undergraduate background. And so... I think I came from a place where I really wasn't aware of my privilege. I actually kind of felt sorry for myself a lot of the time. Mm. Like, oh, like, oh, <laughs> I'm a minority here. And like, everyone pays attention to me. And, um, and and so really unaware of the fact that I came from this privileged position where I come from a country that's very wealthy. I could leave Mauritania whenever I wanted. I had a plane ticket home. A lot of people in Mauritania... Um, want to migrate to the United States or Europe to make more money. Um, and so I think I, in a sense, like wasn't navigating my identity in a very critical or informed way during that moment. Um, I, in the piece, uh, when I came, went back to do research, um, I think I was more tuned into these things, of course, like we all have so much learning to do, but also um, more aware of kind of the the back and forth between um, myself and the people I was working with and um, more aware of like how much I could learn mm -hmm. from others and how much my Mauritanian friends taught me. Um, and so uh, anyway, but yeah, how do, you, how do you navigate that? And I think for me, a lot of it was sort of talking with people about who I was, who they were, learning from each other and... Um, just trying to to think through that, but it's messy and it's hard. And I knew, I always knew, and they always knew, right, that I was from this really different place and had advantages that some people there wanted and didn't have. And that was uncomfortable and challenging. And I, yeah, still think about that a lot today. Okay. Um, so this is super personal, but I think I'll talk about this in three ways. Um, one is about personal identity, second about context, and third about privilege. Mm. Um, so in terms of being somewhere I don't belong, that's my everyday, mm. right? Um, in, in some of my early work on Nigeria, I talk about this idea of kind of layered strangerhood where you don't belong where you came from and you don't belong where you are. Um, and as a child of immigrants in the United States, that's my everyday. I grew up in Idaho, right? So there's not a lot of us there. I grew up in East Idaho. Um, there's a national engineering lab, and my dad is the kind of stereotypical Indian engineer, so that's where we ended up. There's a there uh, there were other students there, but in my school district, my brother and I were the only South Asian kids. Um, my brother also has special needs, so that like was another layer of division. And I mean, heck, even here in Tacoma, there's not that many of us South Asians, right? So. Um, that's just an everyday thing. And in some ways, I think it made it easier. So that's like the first kind of my personal identity component, I guess. But in some ways, it made it really harder. And that's, where I guess, where I get to con context, right? Um, when I started research in both places, they were at extremely vulnerable times. Nigeria had just gone through its third transition to democracy. It was still under what... Um, the U.S. State Department would call its official two-year transition period because, right, transitioning to democracy is a nice, easy two-year package. Um, <laughs> but, right, so, um, and in a context where I think very fairly so, the United States was under suspicion, right? Um, 
colonial the colonial legacy in Nigeria has been horrific, and then the U.S. and British legacy of extracting oil, um, being involved in regional wars during the Cold War, all of that is really horrific. The United States um, had a pharmaceutical company that ran trials in northern Nigeria without permission that led to like long-term brain defects, et cetera. It's why polio is still there. If anybody has seen Constant Gardner, that novel and movie is actually based on the northern Nigerian context, not on the Kenyan context. So all that said, right, like, I mean, there were fears of me being CIA, mm-hmm. <laughs> et cetera. But it was also a place because of the shared British legacy that they were used to seeing Indians around. And they were like mm-hmm. used to Indians being like the math teachers or the professors. So my position as a researcher could be interpreted in many ways in that way. Um And it actually became a place where I could really naturally adopt my Indian identity. I was more easily placed if I wore Indian clothes. Indian Mm. clothes also make way more sense in those kind of hot climates like Indian or Nigerian clothing and stuff like that. Mm. Um, So in that way, I became known. They love Indian films. So there became like these points of interaction that were really nice and lovely. At the same time, you know, the local word for me was whitey, right? So Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of weird kind of personal identities that are happening in this context. In India, especially in some of the localities in which I worked, I actually delayed going to India for a year because there is some of the worst um, religious pogroms. I'm not going to call them riots because when one community is decimated, it's a pogrom, it's not a riot. Um, And I worked within some of those communities. And so it actually... I thought going to India would be easier, especially I was going to the Mm -hmm. city that my family was from. I spoke the local language fluently enough, um, whereas most of my interviewees were Hindi, and I had taken Hindi classes, but it's still like they were coming from somewhere else in India, Mm -hmm. and there was all the regional dialects and stuff. I thought it would be easier, and it was actually way, way, way harder. Mm -hmm. So one, I had to establish my belonging in the community and trust in me especially coming from backgrounds that they saw me and my family by my last names that include caste and religion, et cetera. Um, But it was also my double strangerhood was like really, really highlighted. Like that while I was from this place, I was not of this place. Mm -hmm. And that actually, I I was pretty despondent. After I finished like my eight months, I like went home for a month and like took some time off and stuff. It was really hard. Um, Sorry, that was long. And then the last part, um, thinking about privilege and all of that is despite all of these and despite my identity, right? Like even the ability to go someplace, mm-hmm. and I want our students to really think about this, is exceptional mm-hmm. privilege. Yeah. The privilege of my passport, the privilege of funding, mm-hmm. even though I was a really poor grad student and heck, I went into debt sometimes and like strung things together and ate a lot of potatoes, right? Like mm-hmm. these are, it's still exceptional privilege to do that. And I needed to remind myself even at times when I was feeling like this is really rough or like, oh, goodness, the electricity is not on again today or whatever, that regardless of all that, um, I came back, you know, and people were asking how I managed. Like some of my uncles and aunts were like, oh, and there are all the like cold water bucket baths and stuff. I'm like, y'all, if it's good enough for about 5 billion people in the world, it's good enough for me. Mm -hmm. And like it's just one of those things where you have to really, really stop and think about global inequalities too. Yeah, when I was trying to go to Mauritania one of these times, uh, the Mauritanian embassy, well, Mauritania decided to stop issuing visas to people from the United States because we had basically put some Mauritanians on a blacklist and weren't giving them visas to come here for political reasons. And um, so it was really delayed and stressful and hard and whatever. But eventually I got a visa. And I remember whenever I go to Mauritania, if you walk by the U.S. embassy, 
say, on Thursdays, which is Visa Day, there's just a huge line of people out in the hot sun, waiting in the hot sun because they don't even provide shade, wanting visas, and most of those people won't. So I totally agree that idea of like just being able to go somewhere is really, really privileged. Giovanna, Ami brought up the, I'm thinking about this, about how there was an expectation that because she was Indian, going to India to do research, her service would be easier. Um, You're from Uruguay, and that's where some of your research is. Did did you find it harder or easier, or what were some of the the complexities or dilemmas in you going home to conduct your research? Well, so I have to say that when I was in Uruguay, and I migrated to the United States when I was almost 30, so um, while I recently became a citizen of this country, my, you know, um, education happened mm-hmm. completely in Uruguay. Even more, I never thought I would leave Uruguay, and I hadn't really traveled um, anywhere around Latin America. Uh, well, maybe just briefly to Argentina and to Brazil. So I come from a working class family, and it, it's, it was very expensive to travel right around the, the continent. Um, I, exp- I grew up under dictatorship. So for me, my research topic manifested really later in life when I came here to grad school. Mm. Um, And so the process of thinking about that experience happened as a consequence of being in the United States and starting to take classes that had to do with dictatorship. And I felt initially, well, I can, you know, I can speak about these in a way more informed way because I lived it. I thought naive mm-hmm. idea that um, because you experience it, you have mm-hmm. more, um, you have the right to talk about that more than others. Um, but um, when I went back to start my research, um, I did it coming from the United States. So that became um, a source of suspicion, like um, mm-hmm. Emily was mentioning before, because as you know, the United States was supportive of many of those dictatorial mm-hmm. regimes in the beginning. And so for many of the victims of these regimes, and in particular the women I was talking about before, I interview um, women who had been incarcerated, former political prisoners. Um, there was this sort of... Um, not suspicion about my intentions because it was clearly research-oriented work, but it was, well, you are in the United States now, so why should we maybe share mm-hmm. what we mm-hmm. want to tell you? Um, and I totally respect that and I understand it. Um, on, on my experience as a Peace Corps instructor, if I can talk from that perspective too, it was also suspicious to participate in anything related mm-hmm. to Peace Corps at the time, because as you know, it was very aligned with the Alliance for um, Progress in Latin America. And there was this person, Dan Mitrione, who had been, you know, has a horrible reputation about being involved in um, in teaching torture techniques to police mm-hmm. and, and army officers there. So um, 1992 was one Peace Corps came back to Uruguay after uh, closing the program in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I honestly remember having long conversations with friends about really committing to do this or not. And I lost some friendships over my decision mm-hmm. to teach for Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was a great experience for me. And if we have the time, I actually, we have a group on Facebook with the Peace Corps volunteers mm. from that time. So that was 1992, as I said. Mm. And I was telling them that there was going to be a 
podcast and that Peace Corps um, could be part of the conversation. And one of them sent me this long email uh, <laughs> reflecting on what that meant for him. And so I, he says some interesting things that I would like to share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Giovanna, I, I love what you're saying about the subjectivities, right? Like how we assume particular roles for insiders versus outsiders. Mm-hmm. And I think we sometimes complicate outsider roles without complicating insider roles mm-hmm. too. And what I hope is like, it's actually the interaction where we get right. a lot of productive work. Mm-hmm. But then the question is like how we do that interaction, right? But yeah, I really, I would love what you said about that. So let's talk a little bit about Peace Corps then. Um <laughs> Catherine um, was in the Peace Corps. Giovanna taught for Peace Corps. Um, We have a Peace Corps prep program on campus that um, Catherine directs. Um, So let's talk about it. Let's talk about its its purpose, um, the tensions with the Peace Corps, um, and global service with others. Um, Let's start there. Maybe I can start with just giving the spiel of from Peace Corps' perspective, Peace Corps' goals. Um, So Peace Corps has three main goals. The first one is the one most people have heard of, which is basically to provide something like technical assistance for countries that request it. So basically sending people somewhere to do work um, to countries that request volunteers. So I was in Mauritania because the government, the Ministry of Education, um, had decided to increase the number of years people were studying English in middle school and elementary school to seven. So they brought us in to teach English to fill a gap while they were training more more Mauritanian teachers to have those roles. But the other two goals of Peace Corps are really about cross-cultural understanding. So the first is that, you know, Americans go somewhere else and uh, share things about U.S. culture and they learn a lot about wherever they're living. And then when they come back, they talk about and share um, in my case, uh, everything I learned about Mauritania with family and friends and beyond. And the idea is that through those goals, theoretically, we can build a more peaceful world. Um, obviously, it's debatable whether how effective this is or whether, whether it works. Um, I think one big tension for me with Peace Corps is the fact that it's one way, right? Mm-hmm. So unlike some other organizations like Fulbright um, that sends people from all over world, the world to places all over the world, Peace Corps only sends U.S. citizens to other countries. So it's totally one way. Um, and I think that's problematic. It is a U.S. government program and I always talk with the students here, right? Like if it's a U.S. government program, it's clearly benefiting the United States in a pretty extreme way or we wouldn't pay for it, right? So the fact that it gives all these generally young people, though not everyone in the Peace Corps is young, people this real global experience, these international views, you come back with all these skills that build your resume um, and, and so on. You know, I don't think, it's hard to find a returned Peace Corps volunteer who wouldn't say that they benefited more from their service than they think that they gave. Um, and so I think that's a real challenge and tension and, and so on. Um, yeah. What drew you to apply? Yeah, that's a good question. I was thinking about that today. Um, and it's, I, I think one reason uh, I am involved in the Peace Corps prep program here is I hope that the people in prep go for maybe better reasons than I did. Um, I was, uh, I had studied abroad. I was lucky to get to do that um, in Europe in undergrad. And for some reason, I just had this feeling like I want to go and live somewhere more different than Europe than from my background. And I come from a really rural, small town in northern New York. 
And I, so I applied to a variety of opportunities that, you know, gave international living as an option and got into Peace Corps. And so I went. So I think really, like, I definitely wasn't someone who was like, I want to save the world. And I think that's good, actually, that I wasn't mm -hmm. coming from that mindset. But I also was kind of just coming from like, I want to experience things. I wasn't really, in a sense, I don't think I was really thinking about others that much. But also looking back, when I think about why I did Peace Corps, I was raised Catholic and like the Lutherans, Catholics like care a lot about service. And I think just volunteering and service was like always part of sort of my background. And so I think to me, it was just like natural that you would go serve. But again, I wasn't thinking about um, what I had to bring or didn't have to bring, I would say, as a 23-year-old. Um, <laughs> and um, whether people wanted me there or not, right? You know, so I wasn't thinking very critically, I think, about that choice at the time. Thinking about um, what happened in Uruguay at that time, and I have to say, as I mentioned before, the program opened again in the in the 90s after not being there during the dictatorship and then the first few years of transition into democracy. Um, volunteers at the time could only apply or be in the country if they were either, um, if they had a degree in environmental science or a small business. So there were, were the, those two specific fields in which they could um, serve. I um, agree with what you mentioned. I mean, from the perspective of mm -hmm. seeing the volunteers' experiences, um, that most of them would say, we learned a lot, we benefited a lot. Mm -hmm. But I also saw the impact on some of those, for example, cooperatives that mm -hmm. um, they work with in mm -hmm. small towns mm -hmm. across the country. And also for the volunteers who did work on environmental science, um, the Ministry of Environmental Science, uh, environmental issues in the country was just being created. Um, and they were really uh, crucial mm -hmm. in reaching out to different members in the community, children, teenagers, um, small villages on the, on the southeast coast of the country and do a lot of very valuable work, mm -hmm. which impact is still visible today. So um, if we have time, I wanted to share a little bit of what Ted Grazer said. Ted was a Peace Corps volunteer in 1992. Um, and when a couple of things, I'm not going to read the entire thing <laughs> because as you can see, it's long. But um, I think it's, it, it's valuable to say that after what, 25 years, that group um, is still in contact. Mm -hmm. I'm still in contact with them. Many other of the instructors are um, still communicating, which speaks to the mm -hmm. lasting no, impact of mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships that Peace Corps um, helped to foster. So he says, I want to say that I entered my Peace Corps experience for the correct reasons. I did not want to save the world. I strove to better understand myself, and I wanted to push myself in an uncomfortable and unknown direction to challenge myself and force me to face um, and overcome them. Um, I served in Uruguay as a small business volunteer, um, and I was assigned to Nueva Alvesia, which is a small town in Uruguay, um, to work with a farming cooperative and the local technical high school, teaching the traditional junior achievement program sponsored by the local Uruguayan franchise. Um, 
I did not suffer physically during my time in Uruguay. In fact, I had an apartment, hot running water, bought furniture, my own bed. I, it was a Spartan, yes, but a basic existence. I grew up in the rural south, and I often reflected that 1990s Uruguay had a lot in common with the south during the era of my upbringing. I loved where I lived and soon into my service met the love of my life and future wife, Monica. Monica and I were married in December of 1993, a year and three months into my service, and we have been together for over 25 years. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. The biggest thing that my Peace Corps experience taught me was how to make the best of any situation and also what was really important in life. I learned that I could live without, namely material possessions, and the important things in life are the people with whom you love and share time. Another important takeaway from my experience uh, were the languages I learned. Mm -hmm. Spanish is spoken in Uruguay and Portuguese, which I took while living there. Languages are the key to any kingdom. Now they know the language and have the tools to discover the unvarnished truth without a filter or translator. This honed ability and learned skill aids me on a daily basis and helps me understand the world better. I'm not even mentioning the hundreds of friends and acquaintances that I have met while traveling and the countless additional experiences that I have enjoyed since my two-year um, stint in Uruguay. My network of amigos is indeed great and always growing because of my ability to communicate with folks in their language. I would recommend that any person would, who wants to improve themselves should focus on improving yourself in the Peace Corps. So I know it's long, but I really wanted to share that from Ted. So what I'm hearing from both of you and from, is it Ted? Ted Grayser. Right, is this emphasis on self-transformation. Mm -hmm. And I feel, I don't know about you guys, but I feel um, when I was younger, we won't say when that was, but when I was younger. You um, Thank you. Giovanna is my new best friend. Um, I guess on the emphasis on like going abroad or doing service, et cetera, was really on the experience. And I feel that as I've, as I've transitioned, even but probably starting in grad school and watching undergraduates and then afterwards teaching at elite institutions and stuff, that shift has been really to like, here's my accomplishments, not here's who I am, if that makes sense, right? So there's a really big push to like show you did this and show what you achieved and show that you're saving or transforming the world. Um, and in reality, right, like I remember sitting down with some students, not at this institution, but being like, you're 19 with this much education and at this process, and people have been at this thing called development for, I mean, really hundreds of years. Why do you think this one intervention that you just thought up of last night is going to be the key to save the world? Um, and I guess what I'm saying is that I see this shift in thinking that I actually think is really detrimental, this idea of saving. Um when really I think the experiences, the connections, um, it's the transformation that perhaps should be emphasized, which is less, it's much more difficult to quantify and to measure and to prove. Um, I don't, do you guys see that as well? I wouldn't be able to compare, like, how was it before? Because I wasn't there. there I wasn't yeah. here at the time, and I wasn't familiar with the American educational system and not even with the value of volunteering as part of what you do professionally. That was something that I was so surprised when I came to the States and I realized that you put volunteer work on your CV. Mm -hmm. For me, that was totally a foreign concept. Um, and, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, th I think it was great, and I saw people, you know, um, joining efforts in doing volunteer work every weekend but at the same time it seemed to be part of what was expected and also mm -hmm. show 
um, mm -hmm. as part of your persona or professional endeavors. Um, and that is a foreign concept in Latin America. You do volunteer work or you don't, but it's, if you do it, you don't, it's, it's mm -hmm. not part of how you sell your professional it's, credentials. Yeah, it's not a marketing say. tool. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, so I cannot compare, if uh, I cannot speak to that um, uh, change that you were mentioning, um, but I definitely see that in in new in these generations we are working with sometimes there is a need for for doing that or a tendency to to try to um, to show that commitment in a very explicit way mm -hmm. because yeah. it is expected also maybe just echoing that too I I also think and I think this sort of ties in a little with the saving just an emphasis on skills I mean we're struggling with that at PLU right now with our curriculum right like. Mm -hmm. Wanting, mm. rather than sort of like we're here and it, to learn together, these you know, of course, of, and of course, students are worried about jobs and so on. But like, what skills am I getting, and how can we articulate this as skills? And and I think maybe that's part of it too. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't really know because I don't know a lot of current or recent right. volunteers. But yeah, like resume building and, yeah. and things like this. I mean, yeah, yeah. So probably also echoing shifts in the job market, mm -hmm. shifts in. Right. Um, difficulties even in getting into schools and increasing competitiveness and all of that can might yeah. be reflected in this as well. Um, I, I, I do see it less at PLU and that makes mm. me really happy. I think it also is part of how ideas of service and care are mm -hmm. centered within our curriculum and within our conversations on mm -hmm. campus, um, which quite frankly, I've not seen elsewhere. And I'm still in really great um, connections with the places I've been before. And in some cases, I've only just started to see an occasional, like, nod towards these issues. But I, I do really think PLU does a great job in talking about them. Yeah, I agree. I've been thinking a lot about um, impact and the impact that we think we have on communities, either positive or negative. So I... Um, co-lead a study away program in Tobago and where students job shadow folks in social services or in educational systems or in healthcare. And almost every year students have, they have these two kind of what they think impacts that they're going to have. They're either going to have such a positive impact mm. on folks that when we leave, it's going to devastate them because mm. it was just... Yo, I'm that How dope. How will they manage I'm without that us? Dope. <laughs> or, you are. You are. or, true. Uh -huh. Or there's like, on the other side, there's, well, we shouldn't even be in here because we're going to have a negative impact on them. Uh -huh. um, so we absolution. So there's these two things about sense of impact. And um, I don't want to say sense of importance because we're all important. We're all special. We're all great. Uh -huh. But um, the sense of... Um, the harm, I guess. So just thinking about harm, which is not a bad thing, but kind of having a critical critical thought about what is harm? What does harm look like um, when you enter into different communities and, and really assessing the harm that you actually could and will have on a community? I'm just going to say something about, you're talking about impact. And I'm going back to sort of what I said earlier about Peace Corps, me sort of feeling like one of the well, that Peace Corps volunteers get more than they give, basically, mm -hmm. and that's something I've reflected on a lot and um, struggled with a lot as a former Peace Corps volunteer. And one thing that one moment that was interesting to me, I went back for my research. Peace Corps was no longer in Mauritania um, for political reasons, um, but I still looked like a Peace Corps volunteer. And Peace Corps had been there like since the '70s, so people 
know Peace Corps and there aren't a lot of Americans in Mauritania who aren't Peace Corps volunteers. So one thing I was really struck with when I was back was how many people just came up to me on the street and said, are you Peace Corps? And I would say, no, but I used to be Peace Corps. And they would say, they would always say the same thing. They would say, did you know Vivian? Or do you know Matthew? Or do you know Rashid or whoever? <laughs> like they were, they were a volunteer and they were my friend and they live with me or they live with my family or they taught me in school or whatever. And I think as I reflect on that, and I've reflected on it a lot, I think of two things. One, um, they almost never said the work that person did. They always talked about the relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that I, initially what I think I thought was like, and I still think this, wow, like, okay, that is really powerful, right? That we form these mm-hmm. relationships. And that's a big impact on the world because I know like whoever, Lillian or whoever in the United States is also talking to her friends about the people she lived with. But as I thought about it more and as I think about it today, I also think about how those people like weren't still in touch with those volunteers. And and again, this was like a time like pre, like, at that time, there was a lot of internet, but when most of these people had served, like there wasn't internet, like people didn't have cell phones, you know, now that's totally different. So there were some barriers to staying in touch, but it was still possible, right? And so I think both about like the impact of those relationships, but then also that mm-hmm. I think your situation is wonderful and maybe, but maybe kind of unique. I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. a question. Mm-hmm. Like, do those not move into the future? And is that, yeah. 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 So I'm thinking that maybe it has to do with the different generations because mm-hmm. actually I'm, I'm in contact with this particular group because I was um, an instructor, right, for mm-hmm. this group. I was also a certifier of um, language proficiency the year after with the second mm-hmm. group that came. And the program closed again in 1995 and left the Southern Cone altogether. So, but these all these volunteers... From at least three different groups, they are still in contact mm-hmm. among each other and among among their mm-hmm. counterparts. So I, I'm not sure what happened mm-hmm. there, um, yeah. but yeah, no, they kept yeah. in contact. And I'm mm-hmm. talking, I'm thinking even of Shirley, who was 70 when she went to mm-hmm. uh, Uruguay as a Peace Corps volunteer, retired after raising mm-hmm. six kids, mm-hmm. and she's 95, I believe now. We are still in contact, and yes. she's in contact with the women she worked with in it's this amazing. small town. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, so Kat, I appreciate what you're saying, because again, it points to the like productivity of the interpersonal and the interactive mm-hmm. spaces, which I think mm-hmm. really gets overlooked. Um, I've recently been involved in some conversations about like um, ethical research collaborations mm-hmm. with people in the global south and what it means because mm-hmm. these are often it's seen like you're hiring an assistant or a translator or whatever mm-hmm. um, and not thinking of them as collaborators as people who without whom your research wouldn't get mm-hmm. done etc and then what the long-term kind of relationships mm-hmm. look like because you're really entering into their lives and disrupting them mm-hmm. and it's their everyday life mm-hmm. you are on a special trip right mm-hmm. it is not your everyday life but mm-hmm. you are disrupting their everyday lives um, and I'll, I'll say this this is something that I don't think I've been great at Either mm-hmm. kind of one of my goals for next year is trying to reestablish and be better at mm-hmm. those forms of communication. But it's something that I see a mm-hmm. lot amongst researchers too, mm-hmm. that we're Definitely. in contact with the people who we were in the mm-hmm. field with or met in the field or met this researcher, like share the same field site or whatever it might be. And again, I hate the term field as well because it's so othering and so colonial, um, right? But in our research sites, mm-hmm. these things happen. Whereas with the people that we've, 
extracted information mm. from, those kind of relationships disappear. Mm. And what does that mean? I don't have an answer, but it's just something that I really, really struggle with. Um, and I struggle with, right, if we think about impact, what's my role here? I also think this can be paralyzing to a really bad <laughs> impact. I have a capstone student, I won't say who, but you know who you are, um, <laughs> who is kind of freaking out over their project, rightfully so, thinking about, you know, if I'm looking at these types of interactions, am I at the point where it's like, who am I to even say what's right for this community? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we move back to talking about like transformative experiences, et cetera, and how these types of interactions are actually really beneficial, but we need to think about our positions, the structures we operate in, mm. how we interact, what we're willing to kind of commit. I think we get into huge problems when these are like, especially like the one week or two week or one month, like holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they're billed as holidays and they're billed as like leisure activities. Um, that's where I, I really start to kind of get my, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. When I start to feel uncomfortable about our interactions. And thinking about um, following up on what Ami was mentioning and the capstone experience um, for capstone ex- uh, students in Hispanic studies, where we do the capstone project in the language, mm-hmm. some, it's very important to always talk with the students about, you know, we are not considering Latin America or Spain just as our object of study. Mm-hmm. You're not working with these primary sources and then applying the knowledge, theoretical knowledge from the um, from other places only, mm-hmm. right? You need to make sure that we are working with sources from everywhere. Knowledge mm-hmm. is being produced. They are also to analyze those sources. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I can I, I hear you from that from mm-hmm. that point of view. So you're also then pointing at this question of where knowledge is produced, mm-hmm. right, and which knowledge is privileged. And I think mm-hmm. that again comes back to like when we're in contact with people, mm-hmm. you know, whose experiences are privileged in this as well. Um, and yeah, just kind of breaking out of this like Northern Western dominance and how we understand the world as well. Mm-hmm. And English focused dominance as well, as all the French speakers will complain about, but then everyone else in their own indigenous language as well. So. One of the needs that we have that I've seen when students go over to Tobago is that there is a need to play with children. Like mm-hmm. they want students to interact mm-hmm. with kids mm-hmm. because... Mm-hmm. Teachers have, they have to do this. We um, right. we um, have been in a, a foster care hostel, actually. And mm. the director was like, I come from the system. What these kids need is interaction mm. with people. So I need you to, to go play, go play. Mm. But the students um, going there sometimes but, feel that's important. Right, enough. but the students <laughs> feel that, you know, they have this other expectation about mm. what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a great question and conversation about need and mm-hmm. who gets to define need. Right. And mm-hmm. how do we... Um, how do we negotiate that with mm-hmm. with students when mm-hmm. um, the need comes from the country and the place mm-hmm. and the community, right. and it doesn't match up mm-hmm. with what our expectation of the need is? Mm-hmm. And there's also like where it is our country and our long term histories and mm-hmm. policies that mm-hmm. create the need, and how we erase mm-hmm. that in conversations mm-hmm. about need. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, a lot about what Cole is talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I also think about when I think about need in any community. It's like the members of the community don't necessarily agree on what the need is. So I like mm-hmm. to tell students, right. like, you sure. don't know what the need is, so you need to, like, yeah. learn that. But then, of course, communities are complex, and so mm-hmm. sussing that out and trying to navigate that is really complicated yeah. as well. Yeah, we just talked about that in my development class. Like, 
how do you, if you're trying to do this participatory approach or think about what people are reflecting that uh, so much depends on who you talk to, when, in what context, just like how I ask you, you know, how are you today? Your mm-hmm. answer might differ depending on who you're around, where you're at, mm-hmm. et cetera. But then also like, if I say, what do you think is the biggest problem at PLU? I'll probably get 10 different answers, mm-hmm. all from PLU students. Mm-hmm. So how do we define the boundaries of community is a mm-hmm. big question, too. Riley, um, we went, he went to Uruguay as a student in the Study Away program the first time. And um, we went to this nursing home that is associated with the Jewish community in the country. And there were only two students who chose that organization. Students had the option to choose where to go. Um, and they were not, we were not sure exactly what was um, expected from them or what was that it could do. Um, this is a place that has 100 residents right now, and approximately 50, 60 of them um, participate in activities that involve everything from, you know, theater, photography, or just simply talking to to people who go and visit. Um, Riley, as you might know, is a political science um, major as well. And there were these two PLU students just looking at this large audience of um elder members of the Uruguayan Jewish community. They had no idea what to expect. And so they they were ready to share about U.S. culture, U.S. history. And then one of these women who was 87, all of a sudden asked Riley if he thought that the United States was moving in the direction of the dictatorship that similar to the one we had in the 70s in Uruguay. And he was not expecting that <laughs> conversation <laughs> So it was this long pause, and it's a very difficult question for a you know a young undergrad um, who needs to explain it in a second language. I've been mm. here 21 years, and I'm I'm nervous right now about <laughs> talking in English. Right? Um, he didn't know that this woman was the co-founder of one of the most important leftist parties in the country, um, and so that started one of the most you know, enriching and thought-provoking interactions with the members mm. of the community, but immediately also changed the perception of who they were working with. Mm-hmm. These were not elder seniors of the community right. that they were going to help and entertain. Mm-hmm. These were very lucid people who were challenging them to think and articulate their ideas about their own country and their political situation here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think sometimes a very um, unintentional underestimation of who they are going to be working with or interacting with is the first learning, mm-hmm. uh, the first lesson no? yeah. to learn, to discover who is this other person. Yeah, we romanticize communities mm-hmm. a lot, right? Like, And we do this in the States too. Like, what does it mean to go to a nursing home and perform for them? Or what mm-hmm. does it mean to hang out with kids? Or what does it mean to go to the poor inner city, right? Like, we have all of these stereotypes. And we, I think, somehow when we take them abroad, they become even a more simplified, right? Mm-hmm. And so like a local community is a village with like a hundred people who all think the same, dress the same, want the same, like all of a sudden kind of individual agency, um, individual needs, individual power, like just go out the window, which is really interesting coming mm-hmm. from such an individualized place in the world, mm-hmm. um, how we like kind of strip that agency so easily from mm-hmm. others. I also think, too, how we overlook our own communities. And I, mm-hmm. this is a story I like to tell my students from when I was doing my research. And uh, my closest friend in Mauritania, who I live with, um, I'll call her Tutu, she, one day we were just chatting, and she's, and I somehow brought up homeless people. And she, like, in the United States. And she was like, what, Catherine? Like, there are, ho- there are people in America who do not have homes. Um, 
And she, her mind was like blown by this, right? And she said, you live in the richest country in the world. Like, why does your president not just like build a city for them and like give everybody a home? And I think one reason she was, her mind was blown was because there were no homeless people in her community. And that meant, um, that was uh, not because there weren't people with, out homes, but just that the community members took care of them. So people would sort of like rotate around mm-hmm. and stay with different people. And um, and anyway, what that that really, I always think about that now when I walk through Tacoma, right? And she was pointing out a need in my own community that like her community had effectively solved, right? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, the yeah. question of where is the need and whose yeah. need are you serving? And, and so then we on. also label these things differently to you, right? So if we're working on homelessness or something like that in the United States, this becomes something that's like often thought of as community level issues that we often like think about NGOs towards solving. And mm-hmm. um, and we also think about, I mean, we can just look at the discussion about housing right here in Olympia, Tacoma and Seattle and how politicized it is. But somehow when we take it abroad, it becomes development and that becomes like mm-hmm. education policy. Yes, everybody should have education and like Everybody should have access to it and should be free and everybody should have healthcare and all of these things that we're not willing to like really grapple with at home. But then we also depoliticize it, right? We're just like, here, you guys, you have a school and it's going to be here and these are going to be the standards thinking that there's no politics to where you build the school or which communities have access or what transport routes they're close to or anything like that. Um, And again, I think it kind of emphasizes how we just exceptionally romanticize other places too. Thinking about what um, Catherine was saying, I would say also that because of the image that the U.S. has mm-hmm. projected, Absolutely. mainly through movies, mm-hmm. right, at least in Latin America, this mm-hmm. idea of the U.S. being this kind of family mm-hmm. and the, having this prosperity, etc., is very prevalent, right? So mm-hmm. even in places where, I mean, there is homelessness also, right, in your way, mm-hmm. people still think that the U.S. doesn't have certain mm-hmm. social problems Absolutely. because they are not really seen on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one of the main ways in which people access to this, access the, the um, American society. Yeah. They mm. never come here. Um, I was also thinking about something else that I just... Well, so as a little really funny interjection, and then the 1980s, like, teen movies um, that got finally started to be shown in India in, like, the mid-90s, so, like, five, ten years later. Um, And I remember going to India in the late, well, I guess mid-90s, and my cousins were just completely befuddled that I didn't have a red convertible or that was beat up appropriately and that my high school was not an outdoor campus because we were in Idaho and it didn't have a swimming pool. Like, all of these things that were so portrayed in teen movies, Mm. they just thought that, I mean, as we all do, right? We watch a movie and think that's what it's like, but... So final thought for each of you, what should um, students, faculty, staff, anyone who is interested in serving or caring domestically or globally, what are some considerations that they should think about when entering into those communities? I think the first thing would be to reflect on positioning, right? Why is it that they are engaging in serving or volunteering? What is really motivating that? Um, and be aware of that positioning at all steps of the of the process. Keep yourself accountable about doing that. I think um, one thing that comes to my mind is to listen. So when you whatever community you're serving, um, 
listen to their needs, get to know people, don't just sort of jump in um, and do whatever you think needs to be done. And I'd also say learn what care means in whatever context you're working in, because it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as it does from whatever community or communities you came from. So the danger of going last is that everybody took your thoughts. <laughs> um, but I'll expand a little bit on this idea of position. And I think we think about positionality a lot as, again, really individualized, like what's your race, what's your ethnic background, what's your gender, et cetera. Um, and I think we also, especially for global care, need to think about these in global networks of power um, and recognize that these power structures have long history. They're not just the present um, right, and that they're involved in, in narratives of religious superiority, of racial superiority, of colonialism, extraction, et cetera. And just to be really, really aware of that long history um, where you go because it affects what your interactions will look like. And it also affects even what you think about the place you're going to, no matter how dope or woke you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> so the last thing that we always do for a Decent Alumni podcast is we give shout outs. So each of you have the opportunity to shout out anyone, anything that you want. So I'll start. I want to give a shout out to my tattoo artist, Jeff, who <laughs> just finished my bomb ass um, chess piece. Wow. Uh, the other this weekend, it is so dope. Um, he knows how to tattoo on dark skin. The colors are popping. Awesome. I'm really excited about it. So shout out to you, Jeff. You're everything. Cool. I didn't know this was coming. I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's purpose, probably, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many people. Uh, gee, that makes it very difficult. I don't know. I would I would say, um, because of the topic we've been discussing today, that I would give a shout out to every student who is open to self-reflect and question, um, you know, their vocation and their inquiry methods or... Yeah, I, I just want to say I don't want to identify only the Hispanic studies students, but those are the students I've work, I, I work with, and I'm, I'm very grateful mm -hmm. for the overall attitude that they have. Having worked at another institution before, I'm really appreciative of how open and committed to reflect self-reflection they are. I guess also because of the topic, the first people who came to my mind are... Data Mahmoud and Ali uh, Oud Masood in Mauritania, who have taken me in, taught me so much, um, made me laugh hysterically a million times. And I hope that people who decide to do service anywhere uh, meet people like them. I mean, just stop going at the end. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I'm going to shout out to people who've really helped me think about the kind of global, global power and positionality and thinking about care. And that's Teju Cole, who wrote The White Savior Industrial um, Complex uh, in the wake of the Chibok girls kidnapping, which was five years ago last night. Um, and then Catherine Mathers, who's doing really cool work on the gendered nature of it. Catherine, if you're listening, please, please publish it so I can teach it. Um, and then secondly, I'm going to shout out to um, grad school friends who we've recently been in really good contact over the past week or two, and it's just been a point of strength and love. So with love, I shout out to them. Shout out to Doug, our engineer, who brings the mic. Shout out to Thomas, who brings and sends emails. Um, <laughs> thank you all um, for listening, and we'll be back soon. Take care. Thanks, Thanks Angie. Angie.